This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Tuesday the 18th of May 2021. Now Norman, one of the questions that we've had most regularly over the last few months is whether you can have one dose of one vaccine uh, today and then when it's time for your second dose whether you can have a different vaccine. And we've said before that we didn't have much uh, evidence to back it up but we now do have at least a little bit of evidence about what happens if people are given one dose of say uh, AstraZeneca and their second dose of Pfizer. Yes, and just a bit of context here. We know from other vaccines that by mixing brands, you do get an effective response and sometimes an even better response than you do by using the same brand twice around. And what this is a British trial, which people have been waiting eagerly for. And this is one of their first results. There's more to come. And what they looked at was the antibody response and also some side effects. And what they found was that you got an enhanced antibody response. You actually got a bigger antibody response by mixing the vaccines than with with it originally. And I think it was mostly Astra followed by Pfizer. And uh, and it was, I think, the 12 weeks apart. And they got a much more robust antibody response by mixing the vaccines. The interesting thing was that along with the more robust antibody response, they got more side effects. In other words, you know, feeling crap. Yeah, and there was more people that sort of had that fever that you might get after vaccination and also just pain at the injection site as well. Yeah, which is just your immune system. It's it's called reactogenicity. You don't want to feel crap after a vaccine and you wouldn't want to put people off by thinking that they're going to feel bad. But is that maybe a signal that they're getting a better immune response? Uh, Certainly a signal you're getting an immune response. Whether it's a better immune response is unclear. But they're probably over a large population rather than individuals. If you averaged it out, you probably average out a slightly better response for people who are getting more of a reaction. And it's borne out by this, that you're getting more of an antibody response and on average, overall, you're getting more of a reaction. But I, I suspect that doesn't tie down to individuals that well. So this, like you say, is quite early evidence. When will we know for sure enough to, to say, inform our own vaccine delivery here in Australia? Well, I think it's getting pretty close. The The, um, the issue here is side effects and safety. And, and, and this study looks as though it, it delivers on that. You're not at this stage going to ask for efficacy in terms of reducing infection because you've got all these clinical trials that you've had. So you've had randomised phase three trials of Pfizer and Astra. You had multiple trials of Astra and both vaccines in multiple countries. So you know they work. And from now on with vaccine development, or some vaccine development anyway, particularly with the variants, you're just going to look at the antibody response and say, well, yep, you're getting the antibody response that's correlated with effectiveness. Tick, it's safe. Tick, go. And it might not just be about giving people a better immune response. It might just be about knowing that whatever vaccine is available is safe to give. Yep. And uh, it helps to speed that up. For some people who are vaccine hesitant, getting one Astra, one Pfizer might might help that it might help in that way. Or you could go the other way around. So we've got a couple of questions. And of course, you, our dear listeners, can send in questions anytime at abc.net.au slash coronacast. And Helen's saying, well, I think she's talking about in normal vaccine delivery, when people get the booster shot, is it just this, another jab of the same ingredients as the first injection? So the answer is, Helen, that you could actually get a booster vaccination of another technology. 
So Astra is a viral vector, which takes the, the virus takes the genetic message into the cell, and Pfizer is the mRNA taking the genetic message into the cell. So it's a different vaccine platform, but it essentially ends up doing the same thing, which is generating the spike protein and getting the immune response to that. And then when Novavax comes along, which is a direct injection of the spike protein, or a recombinant version of that, in other words, a, a synthetic version of that, then that would be a, diff- a different technology again. So in other words, it makes sense in a way that if you mix the technologies, you're giving the immune system a different way of responding. But at the moment when we're getting the the dose and then the booster shot later, it's the same vaccine with the same ingredients. Yes, no, no, that's right. And the theoretical thing with Astra is that you might get some antibodies to the chimpanzee virus that carries the message in. And it could be that part of the difference when you get Pfizer second is that you, you're you not hobbled by that antibody response and you get a fresh response to the Pfizer. And a question from John, I think he's referring to the rare blood clotting disorder that some people have had after getting AstraZeneca. John says, do blood clots only happen after the first dose of the vaccine or are they also happening after the second? And he ends his message, love John. Love you, John, too. And um, they also do happen after the second dose, but much more rarely. It seems to be the commonest experiences with the first dose, and but there have been some second dose reports. And so speaking of blood clots, I had never really heard of heparin, which is an anticoagulant drug, until a couple of months ago when we were talking about the fact that the blood clotting disorder that we've seen in some people who've had Astra is similar to a blood clotting disorder that people can get with heparin. But there's actually some good news perhaps on the horizon with heparin. They're looking at it as a way of protecting against getting COVID-19. Yep, shaking up in a, in a nasal squirt bottle and squirting it into your nose. And um, Very high tech. By the way, the, the heparin link to the Astra vaccine is theoretical. In other words, it's, it's a very similar pattern as you indicated, but there's no proven link with people who've been on heparin and getting this Astra side effect, or it's also Johnson & Johnson, it's a viral vector side effect. It's, it's simply that it looks similar under the, when you do the pathology on it. Anyway, we've got a guest to talk about a trial, an Australian trial that's being planned with heparin nasal spray. And it is Paul Monagall, who is Professor of Paediatrics at the University of Melbourne. Welcome to Coronacast. Thanks very much. Pleased to be here. So give us the rationale. So as you say, heparin's been known to be a useful anticoagulant for a long time. But it's also been used intranasally and as an inhaled form uh, for a lot. In fact, our colleagues who work with us at St Vincent's are kind of world leaders in the inhaled heparin space and they've recently had a major trial published. So we know it's... To do what? So their trial was in adults with acute respiratory distress syndrome showing that it improved um, their outcomes um, in the patients who were really sick and on ventilators. The importance of that trial is that we know it's safe. You know, they gave a large dose down a ventilator in really sick people and, you know, didn't see any systemic absorption or any systemic side effects from that. So in other words, it stayed, it stayed on the surface of the lungs, didn't go into the bloodstream. Yes, that's right. Heparin is really important on the surface of all cells. Naturally. Yeah, naturally. So we have it on all of our cell surfaces um, and it's particularly important in COVID, probably on the vascular endothelial lining. But it's also been shown that on the nasal epithelial surface, the SARS-CoV-2 virus likes to bind to heparin and then it rolls off that kind of onto the ACE2 receptor and that's how it enters the cells. So that's the, the lining of your nose where it probably is first coming into your body. That's exactly right. And we've been able to show, as have others, that when you culture those 
nasal epithelial cells or the lining of your nose um, in cell culture. Um, and then you try and infect them with the SARS-CoV-2 virus that if you put heparin in the media, you can prevent that infection from happening. So if you if you use this, how long would it last for? It's not just one and done forever. No. So our thinking, and that's the challenge and that's why we need to trial it, is how much heparin do you need up your nose to keep you safe? We're working on a first principles that a three times a day dose would be okay. But it's like everything. That's why you need to do a human trial to check that what you can convert from in the laboratory actually works in people. So if it's part of the natural process of SARS-CoV-2 linking to you know, joining to the epithelium, why would you, is it just that you swamp the virus by using more? Yeah, it's just a competitive inhibition process. So it binds to the heparin that's in the solution in your nose that then you just blow out of your nose or it comes out and it doesn't actually enter into the cells. So what would the trial look like? We, we kind of think this treatment would be most useful in people whom are potentially going to be exposed to SARS-CoV-2 or who have been just exposed to it um, and yet are not infected. So snort it on the way back from Mumbai. Yeah, that's exactly right. So pre-exposure prophylaxis or post-exposure prophylaxis. So for example, if you were about to fly back to Australia, you've had your COVID test and you known to, are known to be negative, you could then squirt heparin up your nose for the next two weeks. And that would mean if in transit, when you're jammed on that plane with all those other people, some of whom might be COVID positive, you would hopefully be protected from getting infected or while you're quarantining, be protected from getting infected. So how many people would you have to have in your trial to actually come up with a result? Always a difficult question, but we're kind of thinking in the first instance that a couple of hundred would give us actually a really good window into, you know, whether or not there was a positive signal or not. And then, of course, you could expand it if that was what you needed to do. So you do it somewhere like India where you've got high prevalence? Well, you could do it in India or another ideal place for us to do it would be in hotel quarantine or at the Howard Springs facility. That would be a great place to be able to do it here and actually address those questions. Do we know if there's a limit to how much heparin you could have? Like you couldn't just be taking this three times a day indefinitely, could you? Well, a couple of members of our group have been taking it for the last eight months with any, without any side effects whatsoever. So I, I don't think there's a limit to how long you can take it for, but I would have thought that it would be most useful to take at periods of high risk. Um, and, you know. So hang on, they're doing it for self-preservation purposes, are they? rather than self-experimentation? Yeah, I think, you know, some of our group are at the coalface uh, seeing a lot of patients whom are prospective COVID-positive patients. And so they, you know, believe this may well be beneficial and they're happy to do that on themselves. Clearly, before we start giving it to other people, though, as always, I think we need to do a formal trial. And is it expensive? No. And that's one of the beauties of unfractionated heparin. It's a commonly used drug. It's cheap. And in many ways, that's probably one of the reasons why there hasn't been a huge amount of interest. You know, no one company stands to make a lot of money out of a trial in heparin because it's, you know, been off patent for so many years. And, um, and the other advantages of heparin are that you know, readily available and doesn't need to be stored in the fridge. So you don't need a cold chain to get it to people so that they can actually use it. Could it work for the flu? Well, that's a good question. There certainly are some evidence that it's been beneficial for other viruses and it may well 
be useful for something like the common cold. But again, that would all need to be trialled. So how have you, you implied that the pharmaceutical industry isn't bidding a path to your door. How are you going to get this financed? Well, we've been very lucky in that we've received some seed funding now from St Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne, and we're very grateful for that. Um, and I think that will get us started. We've been making application to funds like MRFF, and we're obviously looking for philanthropic donors. So if anyone's got some money in their back pocket that they want to make a difference, in COVID, this could be an opportunity. Coronacast is billionaire's alley, so <laughs> you, you just never know what happened. Paul, thanks. Good luck with the, with, with the trial. Thanks so much for talking to me. Paul Monagall, who is Professor of Paediatrics at the University of Melbourne. Well, that's all we've got time for on Coronacast today. We'll catch you tomorrow. See you then. Mm-hmm.